0: Discover Seasons 1 and 2 now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit san slash peace slash VOSD. That's san slash peace slash VOSD.
1: Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania, Managing Editor at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by Andrew Keats, fellow Managing Editor. What's up, Andy?
2: Not a lot. How are you?
1: Why do we still call you Andrew Keats?
2: It's my byline.
1: Yeah, but no one calls you Andrew.
2: No, I mean, it, it is my byline. You could. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's too weird. It's too formal. Coming up on the show this week, the 2023 Parents' Guide to San Diego Schools is out. Our big annual education project aims to capture data for more than 700 schools and deliver the most useful insights and stories about local education. It's out now. We'll explain the highlights, how to use it, and share our favorite stories. And on the second half of the show, we have senior investigative reporter Lisa Halverstadt. She's going to break down her new investigation into San Diego detox facilities. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Um, Andy, you and I were gone. Our fans noticed probably they missed us.
2: They were, but we were back last week. Yeah. But But we were gone before before that. that. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm.
1: And then we came, came out strong.
2: We just walked right back in. Yeah. You don't forget to do it. You know, (laughs)
1: it's like riding a bike, which I don't know how to do.
2: (laughs) It's like what riding a bike would be like if you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to learn how to ride a bike? No. You have no interest in that? No interest. Have, people have annoyed you by asking you this in the past, I imagine?
1: I don't think I've told anybody. Really. Wow. Well, you're saying it into a, a <laughs> so microphone now, right now. It's
2: telling a lot of people. Maybe
1: people will tweet at me. Okay. That well, they'll teach me how to ride a bike.
2: Well, if you want to learn, mm-hmm. we could handle that, I'm sure. But if you don't want to learn, that's fine too. Anyway, You've made it this yeah. far. Who cares?
1: <laughs> I'm a professional pedestrian.
2: You know what I would say? Uh-huh. Riding a bike is exhilarating. Oh. It is an exhilarating feeling okay i I love it there are times where i think like i'm sure flying would be better but i don't think it would be that much better Hmm. that's how exhilarating i think riding a bike is sometimes
1: okay okay Mm -hmm. i see so talking about non-car riding modes of transportation you were in japan
2: Uh uh-huh yes while
1: we were gone and you witnessed something very cool lots of cool things i'm sure
2: yeah, sure. I had a great time. Mm-hmm. Uh saw some cool things. Yeah, I always, I'm, I'm a little sheepish about talking about trips because uh, I always feel like people, when they come back from a place, so, f- sound like they're the first person in the world to ever go there. <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. they're carrying secrets when actually, like, <laughs> millions of people go. Yeah. So, uh, but I did have an observation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Cycling in Tokyo mm-hmm. is. Ubiquitous. Okay. Everywhere. Go to a transit station, there's hundreds and hundreds of bikes parked there. Mm-hmm. You see people on the roads all the time. You know what you do not see? Is any protected bike lanes. What? They don't have protected bike lanes. People just. People just ride. They mostly take side streets, I think, to get away from busy roads, you know, mm-hmm. and uh where they, you know, sort of stay to the side. There's mm-hmm. uh, just a a thriving bike culture and it just is expected to coexist with cars. Mm-hmm. They don't, uh, now which is different than when you go to Amsterdam. There's, everyone rides a bike in Amsterdam, but it's all on protected, separated right away. Mm-hmm. In fact, I accidentally made a wrong turn and got a, into a car lane in Amsterdam one time. And like, it's like the entire city stopped to like wag their finger <laughs> at me. It was like, like I had created, committed a significant faux pas. Uh-huh. Uh but I'm just uh I was just uh I was just amused in general by the prevalence of cycling without any protected infrastructure mm-hmm. based on the way we talk about the necessity of public infrastructure if we're going to increase cycling usage.
1: Yeah. So they just share the road. They no problem. No, no problem.
2: You know, people drive a little bit slower. I mm-hmm. think that's a big part of it. The roads are not as uh dangerous also the cars are smaller uh-huh um significantly so you know i think both of those are parts of it but the, the i mean the thing that they do have is like unparalleled density mm-hmm. it's just a lot of people and so i think it creates necessary circumstances to ride a bike yeah uh, that maybe we're trying to shortcut with the, the physical infrastructure with protected bike lanes mm-hmm. but in any case uh i just thought it was noteworthy
0: right.
1: a lot of
2: people riding bikes not a lot of protected bike lanes not any as as far fascinating as I yeah. i'd
1: love to see that i've one of those drivers who never knows what to do when there's a bike around me. I'm just the afraid of, of bikes. Yeah, well, in you're, general. Yeah,
2: I mean, th- this is just one of the many road. things you've yeah, you've mentioned yeah. that you don't quite road know anxieties. To, yeah. Not quite you don't quite know how to handle it. I'm
1: like Do I go around and I got cars behind me, yeah. now they're gonna think I'm like, dumb and On do I ramps, do? <laughs> off ramps, freeway on ramps, turn lanes. Whoever designed our freeways, let's talk.
2: Yeah. Some of this stuff might be be you, probably. I don't know. know. At least some of it. (laughs)
1: As we sit in this podcast studio, that smells like a Chipotle burrito. Does it? Doesn't it smell like a Chipotle burrito to you? I don't know, man. Well, you just had Chipotle, but you gave your leftover to our producer. Yeah. Who ate it in the podcast room. Uh huh. It smells like Chipotle. Okay. Okay. As we sit in this podcast room, (laughs) I'm hungry. Um, As we sit in this podcast room, you have this beautiful, beautiful magazine Uh before you. I do. The 2023 Parent's Guide to San Diego Schools. We released it this week. How long have we been doing this? It's our fifth annual.
2: Yeah. You uh, spent a lot of time on this bad boy.
1: (laughs) A lot of time.
2: How do you feel being done?
1: I am relieved. Mm-hmm. uh really but, but proud
2: unsatisfied
1: yeah well i'm i'm proud of the work that mm-hmm. we accomplished but i think i've mostly been focused on pulling together feedback just i'm that type of person i like to
2: you got that growth mindset yeah yeah you i'm like okay what,
1: what did we do how can we do it better mm-hmm. so it kind of makes it hard to enjoy but
2: rise and grind culture yeah yeah coming from you
1: <laughs> girl boss okay i uh, girl boss too hard uh, yeah. as the kids say right and now i'm wondering how to make it better um no, but it's it's a it's a product that we've put out for a couple of years now, and it basically it's a database of seven hundred plus schools in the entire county. Um, we've got different schools and from districts all over the county. Uh, data on performance, teacher experience, um,
2: chronic absenteeism, chronic, yeah. uh, percentage of English learners, mm-hmm. special programs that all these schools have. There's Dual language. I mean, genuinely like a wealth of information. Yeah, it's So much. The, in fact, the primary task that we have mm-hmm. is with handling this much information is just displaying it in a way that you can actually use it. It yeah. makes it actually useful because otherwise you can have all the information in the world. But if it's incomprehensible, it does you no good. Mm-hmm. So we're really in the like information architecture space yeah. here.
1: Everything you need to know mm-hmm. about schools in San Diego here. One
2: yeah.
1: one nice place in charter schools goes everything from elementary to
2: high schools. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, what, what, what leaps out to you about this resource, which is really what it is? I mean, we have, we have very good journalism here. There's multiple stories mm-hmm. that people should read if they're interested in education um, that – yeah, are a, a dose of reality mm-hmm. into the the sorts of uh, things that are going on in San Diego County schools. Um, but then there's also the guide itself, yeah. and the guide itself is just a, a a massive resource. What about that resource stands out to you?
1: So I'm not a parent, mm-hmm. but I well dog mom, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember when don't don't do that. <laughs> but, but I remember when um. When I was younger and my parents are both undocumented, uh, didn't really speak English. And I remember we lived in Long Beach and it was not a nice area of Long Beach in the school that I was supposed to go to. Um, You know, neighbors would talk about it and my my mom had heard a couple of things about it. And she chose she decided that she didn't want me to go to that school. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was quite a journey for her as an undocumented, um, you know, Spanish speaking immigrant to. Try to understand how and if she could move me to a different school. And um, she figured out that process and I got into a, a different school from the one that was my neighborhood school. But I just think back at that time, I remember she was so stressed trying to navigate uh, it's, this process. Yeah, it's, I mean, amazing. <laughs> with zero to think information. About, yeah,
2: to think about like the procedural requirements yeah. of actually doing it and yeah. interacting with the school district. And then the decision-making that you'd have to rely on about, okay, if not the... A, how do I know that this school's not good? Mm-hmm. How do I figure that out mm-hmm. um which you know is ripe for bad decision making mm-hmm. potentially, and then where do I want them you to go? yeah, how do I make that decision? it's yeah. it's, it's a huge task for anyone and throwing I, throwing being like you know a, a marginalized yeah. member of the community it's yeah it's yeah. Just so hard
1: and I just think about like how cool would it have been. If Mm -hmm. I could have given, you know, someone could have given her a parent's guide Mm -hmm. that explains what school choice is, what windows you have for which school districts and what that process can look like, right? That you can look at your neighborhood school. How does your neighborhood school compare to other schools? Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, how you go about that process, just something like that would have been so useful for her. So I think the ability to have that key information that you need to have as a parent to make those decisions and even just understand how the system works and what options you have is just um, incredible.
2: Yeah. The idea of ranking schools, which, which we don't do to yeah. be clear mm-hmm. uh, at all, but you know, the, there's a a look and feel that is like ranking schools here, mm-hmm. I guess um, is a fraught path. Mm-hmm. It is a controversial uh, topic area and it, it because and partially because it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, but we have I think taken a really thoughtful, um, approach here, which is we have numbers that recognize that there are all kinds of different ways for schools to be good or bad, mm-hmm. or for schools to be underperforming and overperforming. You can benchmark them to other schools like them and compare them to one another. Um while considering the socioeconomic realities of that school Mm -hmm. you know which schools are doing better than you would otherwise expect which Mm -hmm. schools are doing worse or is a school by its own standards improving or dis or improving or getting worse what's the trend line on that school all that information is in here that's which is all stuff we we go about with the idea of being thoughtful and and serious and recognizing that the idea of a bad school or a good mm-hmm. school is fundamentally going to be a misnomer there's mm-hmm. right schools for you and 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 schools, for other people. and schools for other people and you need sort of robust information to even be come close to making that decision mm-hmm. um i as a parent um find that people are just immensely thankful to have this mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like no nothing we do where people are more just like like on a personal level, just mm-hmm. appreciative, like, th- like people don't a- act like that way about yeah. stories for the most part. They say, oh, it's a really good story or, mm-hmm. you know, I really value journalism or something like that, but it's not like you did them a personal favor. This, this guide People receive it and they it's like we did a personal favor for them.
1: <laughs> Was it you who said people didn't believe you had a real job <laughs> until yeah, it, yes. they, were, they, were, they saw the parent's guide and they're like, oh. Oh, that,
2: that goofy nonprofit he claimed to work for actually pays him a salary or <laughs> something.
1: I love that. Well, we have a lot of stories, mm-hmm. um, of course, the data and how-to guides on how to navigate this very complex system. Uh, we are also going to have in-person information sessions rolling out. The first one is Monday, March 6th. Register at vosd.org schools.
0: We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Learn to address conflicts at all levels from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit san diego.edu/slash peace/slash VOSD. That's san diego.edu/slash peace/slash VOSD.
1: There's a common misconception about substance abuse treatment in San Diego that people don't want help and that it's easy to get clean. But senior investigative reporter Lisa Hoverstadt dug in and found something troubling. At a time when drug overdoses are surging, vulnerable people seeking a safe place to stop using are usually forced to wait for a bed or never able to access one. Hey, Lisa.
3: Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Andy.
2: All right. So, Lisa... um why don't we start with big picture availability? So we the purposes of your story that we published yesterday were focused on um, services available, detox services that were available for people who are on Medi-Cal. So that's not people who have private insurance that they pay for. These are low-income people, uh, who, uh, many of whom are homeless, but certainly not all everyone, people who are on Medi-Cal. How much availability is there for uh, detox beds for people who are on medical across San Diego County?
3: So there are about seventy detox beds. Seventy. Seventy for a county of more than three million people.
2: Yeah, seventy beds. So before we even, I mean, that's it's such a low number. And none
3: in the city of San Diego. None I in the city of San yeah, Diego. So,
2: where are they? What? How, uh, tell, tell us. Lay lay the groundwork a little bit for how these uh, the capacity and the the services are available.
3: So there are some beds in North County. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some beds out in Campo, pretty far out. Um, there are some beds in Lemon Grove. Um, there are no beds in the city of San Diego, which is the place where about half of the fentanyl overdose deaths have occurred the last few years.
2: Okay, so. Before we even get into however many people on the street are dealing with substance abuse problems, how many other people who are not homeless at all who are dealing with substance abuse problems, and whatever percentage of all of those people who want to get clean, we are talking about such a small number. I mean, it it a, a fraction of a fraction of what we are capable of offering to a person who says, I'm ready to get clean right now, and the, the sorts of services that are the, the first step. You go, you get clean at these sorts of programs, and then you can start you know, a, a, a real rehab program. But first, you go to these de- detox facilities. We have overall, for all of the people who fall in any of those categories I just talked about, 70.
3: 70 beds, and I think it's important to note that there are access issues yeah. on top of that as well. So the detox programs that we currently have, although there's some effort to try to fix some of these things, there are intake processes that make it difficult for people to get into them efficiently. Mm -hmm. Um, There are also limitations on the medical services that can be provided. So so many people may have some sort of other medical issue or there may be a medical issue that's coming up during their withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And these programs that we have currently are not able to serve people that have issues that, you know, rise to a certain level. And though yeah, there aren't hospitals. These are not hospitals. Right. Um, and so those add additional limitations on access.
2: So, yeah, there, you get through the fact that there aren't that many beds. You get through the, the fact that it's difficult to maneuver the system, to go through the administration process, to actually get into one. A- and then at the end of the line, it may be that, so the this facility isn't even well suited for you because basically what they can offer is a bed to get clean and not all of the other medical care that you may need. Yes. I mean, that's seems pretty bad. This like in terms of uh, identifying problems, this one seems like a pretty open and shut case that as long as this is the the situation, as long as there are 70 total detox beds in San Diego County that we've got a significant inhibitor on our ability to get some of the the people who are in the worst shape on the on the streets some of the people who are most likely to end up on the streets because of the condition that they're in right now and the the addiction that they're dealing with that the what we have to offer them is so insufficient to the problem that seems just like as clear as as, as a conclusion as one can draw in a world of uncertainties
3: it's reporting this story It was really hard on me, I'm going to be honest. Mm -hmm. It was really sad to see how the system is failing people Mm -hmm. consistently who are being courageous Mm -hmm. in saying that they're ready to change their lives and then there's not a bed for them. And I think something that perfectly encapsulates that is a data point that I got from the McAllister Institute, which happens to be one of the biggest detox providers in town. But they also run a sobering center just outside downtown San Diego. Now, you can't just walk into the center. Most people are taken by law enforcement because Mm -hmm. they're under the influence in public. And in the last six months of 2022, less than 8% of people who went into that facility and literally said, yes, I would like detox got detox within the 23 hours or so that they're allowed to remain in that facility.
2: So somebody is actively intoxicated. They go to this facility typically by a police officer because of because they're, you know, uh, intoxicated in public. They're actively high or they're actively intoxicated. And the people running that sobering center say, "Would you like us to put you in a detox bed?" And they say, "Yes." And of the time, there is no bed to give them.
3: Exactly. Now, I do think it's important to point out, not everybody going through addiction Mm -hmm. needs detox. Right. You know, a lot of people do have that supportive family. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they have stable housing. They have good insurance um, or, you know, so that they're able to easily access um, different services. There's also, you know, increasingly connections to medication-assisted treatment, which mm-hmm. can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people do need it. Mm-hmm. And right now what's happening is, you know, McAllister and Interfaith, Interfaith Community Services, another provider, they're literally telling me they're getting dozens of calls, desperate calls for help every day.
2: You had, a, you had an anecdote in your story that was amazing to me that um, uh, one of the staffers who works at one of these clinics said when she parks her car… While she's walking from her car to the facility in the morning, typically one or two people every day run to her and say, can you please take me in? Do you have a bed for me? People waiting outside the facility, essentially begging a, a person. They they say, I, it looks like you work here. Can you please take me in? Yes. It's, and I it, think the that... moment of desperation, the moment they're looking for help in the most tangible way a human can ask another human for help. And she has to say no.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, often. Although I will say, you know, McAllister told me they make every effort. Um, and I'm sure of all the providers, if somebody presents themselves at the facility, they want to do everything they can to try mm-hmm. to get that person in. But how many people are just as desperate, mm-hmm. right? And just couldn't make it to the facility. So one thing that came up, um, you know, in my process of reporting, um, talking to somebody who's been really trying to get into detox. And thankfully, this past week he did get in Um, but he was talking about how there was a facility when he lived in Nevada that you could just walk in and you know sometimes you might wait several hours in the waiting room but you would be seen that day Mm -hmm. and you could be connected with something and San Diego doesn't have a place like that we don't have a place where people are in this desperate position can just walk in and so, what's happening is they're calling a bunch of different places. Um, you know, maybe somebody is trying to help them and is making those calls, or sometimes they're desperately showing up. I heard about one instance, a woman literally pushing her shopping cart to the McAllister facility in Lemon Grove. Can you imagine how much effort that took her to get yeah. there? Yeah, it's crazy.
1: so what was um the individual you just spoke about? You mentioned his story in your article.
3: What was his journey like? Oh, boy. So um, I've been talking to Ryan now for a few weeks um, throughout his his journey with this. He um, had a tough situation come up. He'd, he'd previously, um, you know, struggled with addiction, um, but had been in recovery for mm-hmm. a few years. And a sit- tough situation came up and he relapsed, started using fentanyl, mm-hmm. been going for years to a methadone clinic successfully. Um, and... Early last month, he decided, okay, I got to turn this around. This mm-hmm. is not going well. And so, with the help of a case manager at the methadone clinic that he goes to, um, you know, they started calling, trying to get him into a detox bed. He ended up waiting 21 days to get a bed, and during that time, he was waiting. It was just excruciating for him. Um, he made a tough decision at one point, maybe. He should take some time off work because gosh, if a detox bed's gonna be open, you know, you wanna be able to get in lickety split, right? And then he's waiting and finally he got so desperate he actually checked himself into the hospital. If you can imagine, he said he was suicidal and they kept him for two and a half days. Well, when that time was up, they said, Well, looks like your mental health condition is is better. Yeah, they're you not know. a detox facility. They're not a detox they, facility.
2: They, they checked him in because he said he was suicidal. When they got to the position that he had that moment of crisis had mm-hmm. calmed down, they said, You know, we're, we're not keeping you here until you're clean. We're, you know, and they yeah. put him back
3: out. And so he ends up going home and starting to use again mm-hmm. because he's been using to try to function. Because I think what a lot of people don't understand is that it gets to a point when somebody's dealing with addiction where they're so reliant on this drug to just be normal. Mm-hmm. And normal might be a little different for them than it is for maybe some of us, but that's how they're they're just functioning. Mm-hmm. If they mm-hmm. don't use, you know, they could be having cold sweats, they could be vomiting, just all sorts of horrible um, symptoms. And so, you know, at that point, he literally said to me, you know, he felt like he was failing and questioning is, am I going to make it through this? Mm-hmm. And he then waited another week to get into a detox bed. Another week after that.
2: Yeah. I mean, you also, you talked to a lot of experts in the story and one of them said that the most important thing all available research says is that when somebody says they're ready to get clean, that you have an option for them right then, not in an hour, not in a week, right then. And so this guy's, I mean, you know, he's waiting 21 days with all of these steps in between. It's, I mean... Thank God he managed to get into a facility at the end of that at that twenty one day period. But there's a million different ways that could have gone in that time.
3: Yes, and there are so many people that can't hold on like Ryan did. Yeah, I think that's really important to mention. Um, you know, I was talking to uh, you know a lot of people in the process of the story who've tried to help people get detox beds or work with people who do, and it really struck me. You know, talking to the rescue mission. Um, which has a recovery sort of model associated with its homeless serving programming too. Mm -hmm. The vice president for the rescue mission told me that their outreach workers have literally stopped suggesting detox to people that they know would qualify and could benefit from that service because it's so likely that they are not going to be able to get a bed quickly, and that there's going to be this whole rigmarole of you know barriers and you know other issues, that that person's just going to drop off. Mm-hmm. And so let's try something else. Um, and and I talked to a, a another uh, homeless outreach worker, um, Michelle Lafever with Father Joe's Villages, who is in recovery herself, and she just talked about how many people that she's lost along the journey and getting so excited that, Oh, today's the day for this person because wow, they took that first step and then they didn't hold on. They couldn't hold on for the number of days or even hours sometimes.
2: I mean, what Ryan's story, what the, that anecdote from the rescue mission, what this all paints a picture of, this is just whatever percent you believe detox facilities are as a, as, as the whole of our services sector for solving this problem, whatever share you think they are, we just don't have it. I mean, that's fundamentally what this is. We just don't have a genuine detox offering. It's just not part of what we can do in this county, apparently. Nice. I mean, if I mean, if you were looking for something and 92 percent of the time you didn't find it in a certain place, you would just stop searching there. And that's what the rescue mission people are telling you, are are saying. You get no 92% of the time, you stop asking that question.
3: Well, and I think it's important too to just note that this does seem like a bigger problem in central San Diego. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anybody who walks downtown these days can see that there are a lot of people in need. And maybe, you know, a fraction of those people need detox, but for extremely vulnerable people, if they raise their hand, you need to be able to help them right yeah. away and we just do not have that capacity right now. Yeah, I'm under in no San
2: Diego. I'm under no delusions that we like if we were to get to 1500 detox beds that suddenly every person on the streets in downtown San Diego would put put their hands up and be willing to go or that even all of those people need detox. But it is such a failure to not be able to offer it to the people who do want it I mean it's a simple goal that the number of people turned away when ready for and open to going into to detox that should be zero that that's a that's a simple goal that the that the the region and the various players that that work in this sector could could and should set
3: Well, and certainly the providers, I would say, they're feeling this so viscerally, Mm -hmm. too. They know that they're not able to provide as much as needed. Um, You know, they get the calls from people literally, you know, that same intake person you talked about who, you know, people will run to her car. She was saying people will literally say on the phone, if you don't get me in today, I'm going to die. Because a lot of times they literally just went through an overdose or something tough happened, and they're at this moment of clarity that now they want to get they want to get help, please now.
2: Yeah, and they and yeah, they're aware they 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 feel the monkey on their back that's calling them away from it. They know it's a fleeting moment that they have to go get into this facility. That's uh, that is a a sobering picture uh, of desperation. I'm find it incredibly depressing just to to think uh, that we would be. So ill-equipped to handle that p- piece of the problem, whatever, however big you think that piece is, it's, it just seems uh, like something we should be expected to do.
3: Well, and I will say that the you know those same providers that I mentioned, they all want to expand as well, mm-hmm. um, and and there is some money that the city and county have doled out to McAllister, for example, um, to try to dramatically expand. But the issue is they're struggling to find places to put the beds.
2: Yeah. So is it, it it's more Opportunity than it is funds. Well, I, I believe. Mean, presumably it's both, but.
3: A bit of both, but mostly yeah. I think it is, you know, finding locations. I think that there is a sense, wow, this obviously help is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an opportunity to potentially, uh, could the city or county use some of their opioid settlement funds mm-hmm. to try to put into addressing this problem? Um, but. You know, I have a lot of questions and this is something I want to continue to dig into because I don't think, you know, that I can come away from a story like this and just walk away and move to the next one.
2: Yeah, no, I, I there's m- more to be done here, but uh, we should also say uh, Ryan, uh, not his name. We changed his name in our story for obvious reasons so we could discuss his uh, private personal situation. Um, but uh, thanks for doing the story. It's very good. Uh, and yeah, as you said. More to be done.
3: More to be done.
1: Thanks, Lisa. You can read Lisa's latest investigation and all her stories at VOSD.org slash Lisa. That's VOSD.org slash Lisa.
0: Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. You can check out that 2023 Parent's Guide to San Diego Schools now at VOSD.org schools. That's VOSD.org schools. Link is in the show notes. Andrea Lopez Viafania is managing editor of Voice of San Diego. Andrew Keats is also managing editor. I'm Nate John, producer for the show. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.